Good morning. Everyone okay? Yes. That's good. I like a bit of call and response. So, um, as has been said, uh, my name is Nat. I've been a part of Revelation Church now for nearly three years or so now. Um, time has flown by. It's been great fun. Um, and today we're going to be looking at, um, as has been said, something that happened between Jesus and some of his disciples about a couple of weeks on from, when, from the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, if that's paper format or, or electronic, we're modern, aren't we, um, to John chapter 21, that'd be fantastic. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation, and I hope that it's going to turn up on the screen, yeah, behind me, if you haven't got a Bible with you. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, if you're not familiar, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how John, the writer, refers to himself, therefore said to Peter, I know it's a bit big-headed, isn't it really? Um, He loved me more than everybody else. Um, Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I'm going to ask you a random question. Have you ever been involved in a wedding? Now, you might be thinking, that's a bit of a strange question to ask, but please stick with me. It will make sense eventually. It's never a good sign when the preacher starts off this way, but follow me. And I don't mean just invited to a wedding, but I mean fully involved. About six months ago or so, I had the privilege and joy of being involved in my brother's wedding. I was asked to be his best man. I don't know why he decided to do that. It was foolishness on his part. But there was so much to do. Weddings take an awful lot of work because once you've done the hard work of getting engaged, there's then all of these other things you've got to consider. Where are you going to get married? Who is going to be marrying you? What is, what is the bride going to be wearing? What is the groom going to be wearing? What about the bridesmaids and the groomsmen? Are we going to decorate the hall in some way, shape or form? Is there going to be flowers? If so, where are we going to get them from? How much is it going to cost? Who's going to put them up? What's it all going to look like? What are the timings going to be? And then, that wasn't enough, 
If you have a reception venue that's somewhere else afterwards, where is that going to be? How is everyone going to get there? What time do you need to be there for? Is there going to be food? What's everybody going to eat? Is everyone going to like what's being offered to eat? Being offered to eat? There's a lot of things to consider. And you have all of this work and effort and energy being expended and poured into this one climactic, exciting day. And even the day itself can be pretty long and arduous. It was for me. I had to go up and down a flight of stairs about eight times. My legs got a good workout that day. But then afterwards, after the joy and the ecstasy, it's over. And you don't really know what to do with yourself. All of that time you've put into it that got lost in wedding planning is now suddenly given back to you. And you don't know what to do. And now this is a sort of segue into perhaps how the disciples were feeling at this point in time. They have just lived through the most emotionally exhausting couple of weeks of their lives. This man, their friend and teacher, Jesus, who they'd followed for about three years up until this point, and they had seen him perform miracles, seen him preach the word of God, opening eyes to who God really is and how he wants to know us. They'd seen him being heralded on his way into Jerusalem, heralded as a king. He told them that he'd overcome the world, and yet they then had to watch him be betrayed, captured, have to endure the most unjust trial probably ever carried out in the history of humanity and then be sentenced to die and mocked and crucified and I mean that's a lot to get your head around it's a lot of trauma to sort of get your head around and process but then three days later they're all in a locked room because they're slightly scared of what's going on and lo and behold a few of others Jesus other followers come into the room and say you ever guess what We've seen him. He's alive. Hang on a minute. Dead is dead. I've seen people die before. They are definitely, no, 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 that can't be true. That can't be right. And then later that day, Jesus suddenly appears. He's in the room. Oh my goodness. Imagine how bewildering that must have been. All of the thoughts that you have to process and go through in your mind. And then Jesus encourages them then to go on to Galilee which we read about in Matthew 28, verse 10. And now some of them are there. They don't really know what to do with themselves. There's no clear direction on what they're supposed to be doing here. They're tired. They're confused. They're processing, not just the last few years, but the last couple of weeks, the last few days. And they're waiting. Waiting on Jesus. And they've waited on Jesus before. If we read in other parts of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that Jesus sometimes took himself off to go and pray, and the disciples then had to go and find him and bring him back. But this time, it's different. He's not physically available in the same way. Time and space doesn't seem to have, the rules don't seem to apply to Jesus anymore. He can just turn up out of nowhere. And the waiting feels indefinite and the restlessness starts to rise. And questions start to probably trickle through to the front of your brain. Why does he want me here? What am I supposed to do? What's next? And of this seven of them that are gathered together, Peter declares, I'm going fishing And the rest of them decide to join in, and they go out at night in the hope to catch fish. Apparently, fishing at night is the right time to do it. 
Who knew? I have no idea. I'm not a fisherman myself. And hoping to catch some fish to probably eat for breakfast and the rest of the day, and also maybe to sell at a market later on to get some money. Now, as I said, I'm not a fisherman. If I was bored and restless and waiting, sitting in a boat in the middle of the night, when I would want to be in my bed with a hot, nice cup of hot chocolate, and I, I wouldn't really want to be doing it, to be honest. I wouldn't really want to be out there, boring, looking at the water, hoping that some fish might just suddenly appear, hoping that something will happen. It's pretty boring. But it makes sense for some of them. Some of them, we know, used to be fishermen. Peter, James, and John were fishermen before Jesus called them to follow him. Now, some scholars actually debate as to whether Peter's doing something right or wrong here. Was he right to go out in the middle of the night and go back to going fishing? Is he compromising his new calling to follow Jesus? Was he simply being wise and practical? But John doesn't seem to make a comment on that. The point that he's making is just that they decided to do something. And it's easy in seasons where we're not quite sure what's coming next or what we're supposed to be doing to want to know clearly from God what it is I'm supposed to be doing. I find that for myself. I want to know with complete certainty that what I'm about to go and do is completely correct and right. That there must be a clear job for me to apply for, a career to pursue, a relationship to go after, a ministry to step into. Because, heaven forbid, I'll fall out of line for God's plan for my life. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of the disciples that went with Peter started to now feel the same way. Because their night of fishing, it did not go well at all. They caught nothing. Nada, nil, zip, nothing. And they're starting to now probably enter into blame games. We know the disciples, if you've read, read the Gospels before, they're very good at this, blaming one another when things don't go quite right or don't go quite to plan. The disciples might have said to Jesus, sorry, not to Jesus, to Peter, why have you decided to do this? Jesus didn't tell us to do this. You let us out here and it's been pointless. It's been fruitless. It's been a waste of our time. What would Jesus say? Peter's probably then putting it back on them saying, well, I said, if you look at what I said, I said, I'm going fishing. I didn't say, let's all get in the boat together and go fishing. I just said I was going to do it. And at this point, as the day begins to break and the frustration's probably now at boiling points and the anger is rising, they suddenly hear a voice call out to them through the mist, that's the cloudy mist that hovers over the waters in the morning time. And the voice goes, children, do you have any fish? Or more literally from the Greek, lads, have you caught no fish? And I don't know about you, but when I'm doing something and it's not going how I want it to, it's really frustrating enough on its own, isn't it? But then when somebody comes along, perhaps innocently, and goes, it's not going to plan, is it? <laughs> oh, it's so annoying. For me, this happens all the time with DIY. I am no good at it. My dad was brilliant at it. And I don't know if any scientists have ever done any research into whether DIY skills are genetic or not and gets passed down. But if they are, it didn't reach me. I missed out, sadly. So whenever I'm putting up something simple, simple, as a, some shelves or a coat rack. It often doesn't really go to plan. I'll have all the bits of the tools and the equipment, but it doesn't really go how I want it to. 
And it usually takes me an awful long time. At which point Fran will innocently, my wife, will come to me and she just wants to know when I'm likely to finish. And she'll just go, oh, have you not finished it yet? Oh, the anger that I feel in that moment. Everything that I have to do to restrain myself and go, no. And that's probably how the disciples say the word no (laughs) that we read about in verse 5. No, we haven't got anything. But they don't have the inside track that we do. We know it's Jesus. They don't yet. Now, if Peter and the other disciples had truly fallen out of line of God's plan for them, what could Jesus' response have been? We know that he used to get frustrated with them. I mean, feel free to go and read the Gospels beforehand. Where Jesus often got very frustrated with them if they didn't get it. Sorry, I just lost my point there. He did get frustrated with them. So maybe it would have been the same. Perhaps Jesus was just walking, having a lovely, leisurely morning stroll by the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake or Lake Galilee, as it was also called, enjoying, rejoicing with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We've just overcome Satan. We've done it. We've won. Hooray! And the Holy Spirit goes, Jesus, you'll never guess what your friends are doing now. And Jesus then looks across. Ah, no. What are they doing now? Silly, silly disciples. They've got it wrong. But if we look at Jesus' response in verse 6, they don't seem, he doesn't seem mad. There's no inquest as to why they are there or what they're doing. And he gives them a very ordinary instruction. There's nothing necessarily significant about casting the net over the right side of the boat as opposed to the left. But he asks them to do it in this heat of this boiling point moment. And they decide to comply, despite the fact that the best time to fish had already passed. And the haul is so great, they can't bring it in. And at this point, the penny sort of drops for John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he goes, it's Jesus, it's the Lord. And he says so to Simon Peter. And Peter, ah, bless him. If you've ever read any of the, as I said, the Gospels beforehand, you'll know what kind of a guy he is. Very exuberant, doesn't really always think stuff through. What he decides to do is put on his coat and then jump into the water, which I still find staggering. If I was going to jump into some water, I would not want to be wearing clothes because it's just going to make it heavier for me and harder for me to do the swimming. But he decides to do it, puts on his coat, throws himself in and leaves his friends behind to deal with the fish. Such a friend, isn't he? But why is this significant? You're perhaps wondering, as I did at this point. What does this actually mean for you and I perhaps in seasons where we're not quite sure what happens next or where we're going next. Well, you'll be pleased to hear that I'm now going to be going into a proper sermon. And by that, I mean, I've got three points that I'm going to make. So the first one is a practical one. The second one is more kind of like a trying to get a better idea of who Jesus is that we've already been celebrating and rejoicing in already this morning. And then the third one sort of brings this all together as to what we do now. So the first point, if you're writing notes, is we make monuments from our God encounters. Now, what on earth does that mean? Let me explain. When Peter, James, and John first met Jesus, we can read about that in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Funnily enough, they were in a boat after a night's fishing where they caught, you guessed it, nothing. Jesus is then 
nearby encourages them to let down their nets again into the water. And you'll never guess what? The fish appeared. Woohoo! And Peter sort of recognizes that God must be acting through Jesus at this point. And he gives him a new calling of, from now on, you'll be catching men. Now, because that mirrors so closely to the passage that we're looking at, no wonder that John's able to put one and one together and go, this is happening again. I've experienced this before. Therefore, it must be the same person behind it. It must be Jesus. So perhaps then the plan was for the disciples to be in this boat all along. There was no right or wrong about it. Perhaps Jesus is working through the fact that they're there anyway. So that they could be reminded of this calling, reminded of who they are now as followers of Jesus. And I think this is something that we can apply in our own lives. If we've encountered God before, we felt like God has spoken to us. Maybe someone has said something prophetic over you in the past. Maybe you've been reading the Bible one day and a verse or a passage just leaps out at you. You should try and record them. I try to, so that I can look back on them. So that in seasons of confusion, I can be reminded of who I am. The guys in the Old Testament were really good at this. Often, if they encountered God, they would actually make a physical structure in that geographical location where they met with God. So that whenever they came back around again, because they were a nomadic people, they could see the monument, be reminded that God spoke to them and of what he said. We should do the same so that we can be encouraged and feel and know that God is for us in these seasons. And the things that we might look back on might not be that specific. Let's take what Jesus said to Peter, for example, here. He said to be, what, was it, what did I say? A catch, you'll be catching men. Now, it doesn't say where to do it. it. doesn't necessarily say how to do it. Nor is it really... It's not really clear what Jesus actually means. You'd forgive Peter for perhaps thinking at that moment in time going, is he really wanting me to get a big net and go around catching people? But the whole point is, is that it's a reminder of our identity so that we can keep moving on, following Jesus in faith, even when the euphoria of that God moment has gone. And reminds us also, that he was spoken to us before, and therefore, he can speak to us again. The second point is this. Note takers, are you ready? The resurrected Jesus shows us that he is fully God. We've already been rejoicing in that this morning. But the fact here, the fact that we're encountering a resurrected Jesus, this is all happening after Good Friday and Easter Sunday, after the death and his initial resur- and his resurrection. The fact that we're talking about a resurrected Jesus, pretty amazing in itself. As I said before, dead usually equals dead. But that's not the case for Jesus. And it validates what he said would happen. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, Jesus actually predicts that he was going to die and rise again three days later. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus' word is trustworthy. So we can believe the things that he says about himself. When he describes himself as the son of God, he describes himself as the way to know God as father. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal... There we go. But here we see him speaking again now. 
speaking across a body of water between himself and the disciples and then out of nothing bringing about a miracle, bringing about life. In other words, the fish just suddenly appear. This idea of God calling out and speaking over the waters and bringing about life, it reminded me of God's initial relationship with his creation and his people, going all the way back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God, it says, was hovering over the waters of a formless world, and then God speaks, bringing about life. This moment, therefore, is once again another moment where Jesus is proving to us that the God who was in Genesis 1 is the same God speaking through him now, because only God alone can bring about life out of nothing. Therefore, Jesus must be fully God, as well as being fully man, because he died, because he rose again, because he eats with his disciples, as we'll read later on. It gives us confidence that the resurrected Jesus, when he speaks, he speaks with authority and he's able to bring about changes in all sorts of different circumstances. So if this is the Jesus that we're talking about here, the same one who was speaking all the way back in Genesis 1, the one that's speaking now, fully God, fully man, who we can follow in faith, who gives us God encounters to remind us of who we are in him. What does that mean for the disciples in this moment? What does it mean for you and I in terms of what do we do? How do we live this out? This is my third point. The resurrected Jesus calls us to act in faith, but it's all centered about being with him. The disciples were in Galilee as per Jesus' instruction. They were meant to be there. They They followed him in faith to that point. And they were just doing something, a normal everyday task for some of them, well it used to be anyway, of going fishing. It was an ordinary thing. And it wasn't going well. It hadn't gone how they had hoped. And in the middle of this moment where the frustration is at absolute boiling point, Jesus then just says to them, Another small instruction. Cast down your net on the right side of the bow. It's such a normal instruction. Burning bush moment, this is not. The disciples probably had already tried it. They probably already tried casting the net over the right, over the left, perhaps even over the front or the back. Is it port or starboard? I don't know. I'm not very good with boats, as you can tell. But it's such a normal instruction and it doesn't really direct their future it is a here and now instruction Jesus wants to meet you in those moments in the here and now in the normal in the everyday in the ordinary not just when we come to be together on a Sunday when we're when we probably feel like it's right to be I'm so open to God this morning because that's what I'm supposed to be or when I go to that conference I'm so open to him speak to me Lord But yet he wants to speak to you in the ordinary moments, the normal things. And the wonderful thing is, is that when we act in faith, when we follow those little here and now instructions, as he leads us breadcrumb by breadcrumb, like the Hansel and Gretel story, almost, he will bless us out of his abundance. 
because he's God and he has no limits. And we know the size of the hall, 153 fish. I don't know about you, but 153 fish between seven men, probably a lot more than they needed. Didn't need that many. And when they get to the beach, after having actually stepped in faith and bringing about this 153 fish, what do they see? Let's look in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Thank you very much, Daisy. With fish laid out on it and bread. He already had the food cooking. He didn't need it. All this fish has been brought to shore, more than was needed, more than enough to make breakfast for not just that day, but for several days to come. And yet Jesus still has the food prepared. Isn't that amazing? I'd love to know how he did it. It doesn't say that. But the encouragement is, is that even if we don't always get it quite right, we don't always take those small steps of faith. He provides for us. The fish is on the barbecue for you and I already, as it were. So when we, but the the encouragement is is that if we do follow these here and now instructions, we take these small steps of faith, we follow the guide to life that Jesus maps out for us, there is an abundance that we can be blessed with because he is God. And he rewards us and wants us to walk in faith with him, wants us to follow him. And he gives us an instruction that we can do at all times. Because you might still be thinking, Nat, you've still not answered the question about the future. Well, those small, specific instructions that may come from Jesus are there. There's the guide to life that we can read about. It's there. And there's one great big thing that Jesus does ask us to do at all times, which is the Great Commission. That we should be going around telling people what it's like to know him and telling people, about him so they can become disciples too. And I find it remarkable to think that that's something that we can be doing at all times, no matter where we are in our journeys or in our walks with God. And the reason he does this is because he wants us to do it out of a place of knowing him. It makes such a difference when somebody's telling you something from something they've actually experienced and something they actually know personally for themselves as opposed to just a fact or something they've heard about at school or at university or from a passing by from a friend the other day something that you've known experienced personally because God is intimately interested in us as people because the thing with the great commission the thing that Jesus wants for everyone to know who he is he could have done it himself let's just think about it he's able to appear at any point at any time anywhere. Therefore, if I was Jesus and I was thinking strategically, I would come up with a slick pop-up marketing campaign with some special guest appearances across the globe. Therefore, millions of people can see Jesus all at once and be introduced to who he is, know that he died, know that he rose again, know that he's now going to offer eternal life to them forever, where they can be friends with God. And it doesn't matter all the things that they've done before because it's been eradicated because of the blood that was shed, his perfect blood that was shed for us for all time. But he doesn't do that. Jesus, sorry, God, decides to work through you and I because he wants us to know him. 
And in this moment, in this story, rather than gallivanting around the globe, he chooses to appear to seven men in a boat in an often forgotten part of Galilee so that they could know him personally, so that each of us here today, 2,000 or odd years later, can know him too. And Jesus tells us and shows us that this is what he is all about. With four words that he says later on in verse 12. Come and have breakfast. Don't overly worry about the doing and what's going on right now. Just come and sit with me for a bit. Let's hang out. Let's get to know each other. Let's enjoy one another's company. And this again reflects something that Jesus says about himself in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 29. He just says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And I haven't the time to go into that fully because it's so loaded that in of itself. But he's saying that he's accessible to you and me. That this super impressive God-man who was there speaking things into existence right at the beginning of the foundations of the world that we read about in Genesis 1, who was adored by angels and heavenly creatures and beings, who willingly chose to become a man and a human like you and I, who decided it was wise to die on our behalf, who bore the wrath of God over the sin and the things that we do wrong so that we might be fully justified and made right with God. This man whose death made the earth shake, who fought against Satan and won, who has risen from the dead with no external help from anybody else and still bears the scars of his crucifixion, he was available to those seven men. And the most wonderful news is that because he's risen, for all time, for all of eternity, he's available to you. He's available to me. The most engaging, fascinating man in all of history just invites you to come and sit with him, to have breakfast. And in that passage where he says that he's gentle and lowly, it says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I do a lot of work. I'm sure you guys all do too. I'm a bit tired sometimes. All of us can come and have breakfast if the band would like to come up. In the moments where we're not sure what's happening next, we can be encouraged, therefore, of times when God has spoken to us before, encouraged by the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but also encouraged by the fact that because he rose again and because he wants to know you and I, we can, he is with us and he's very much for us in all the seasons of our life. Always cheering us on, always wanting to come alongside, always there to provide. And he's there to bless abundantly if we continue to follow him. So we're going to sing together. I'm going to sing a song. And then afterwards, we're going to have an opportunity to actually pray for one another. We haven't got tons of time, have we, Duncan? So I don't know what you want to do about that. 